1: Welcome to the Midas Touch Podcast, Legal AF. The A stands for analysis and the F stands for friends because we are your friends who break down the law for you. Ben Mycellus here joined by Michael Popak of Zupano, Patricius and Popak. And I'm from Garagos and Garagos. If it's Sunday, it is Legal AF. Popak. How are you doing, my man? I'm good.
2: I'm good. I'm back in my back in my home studio. We are again coast to coast and cover to cover with a special guest today.
1: Popak, I like how on your LinkedIn right now, your photo is from the (laughs) last from the last podcast Uh where I said, and that is why we have Popak in reference (laughs) to the fact that Midas Touch since its creation, Um, with all of our success comes. A lot of haters out there in the world and Popak has helped Midas Touch not just as a legal analyst but as our lawyer navigate through all of this right wing GQP crazy lawsuit, litigation, demand letters. It's been uh, quite the journey, Popak, over yeah. the past and, year.
2: And and Brett, your brother, will be impressed. I won't tell him how long it took us to find that particular clip and, and freeze it so I could use it up on uh, my profile. But uh, yeah, it was fun. It was fun that we found something where my face didn't look contorted. And uh, that's why we have Popak. Uh, in Brett's uh, s- uh,
1: style of language underneath, you know, but we did so. it. But I could tell you that it would probably take Brett a fraction of a second. And my <laughs> gut is that it probably took you hours that, to get that done. On today's Legal AF, we are going to be breaking down the recent NCAA rulings that you talked that I'm sure you've heard about. We're going to be talking about a Supreme Court case involving a cheerleader, who screamed, fuck this school and fuck football and fuck sports. Who hasn't said it off? Who, who has written that? Who said that? But it's wild that that case, though, that her saying that on campus when she was 14 years old and didn't make the varsity cheerleading squad, she only made the JV. And she said, fuck this, that that became a Supreme Court case. But it did. There was a recent ruling, 8-1 decision that we'll talk about. We're going to talk about in Popox' home state, Florida, some of the... Uh, in my view, incredibly unlawful, but highly repressive, no matter how you want to classify it, laws that Governor DeSantis. Um, has imposed on edu- public educational institutions creating fake controversies. We're going to talk about Rudy Giuliani, duty Giuliani uh, being suspended by the New York bar. We're going to talk about Donald Trump and the Trump organization suing New York. Um, and we're going to talk about the Trump organization likely going to be criminally charged. I think there <laughs> is a interrelation there. And it's just Trump projecting before The DOJ charges the Trump Organization and Trump. We're going to talk about the DOJ suing Georgia. And we're going to talk about Chauvin sentencing Popak. The way I did that organizational framework at the very beginning is very Popakian, would you say? It
2: it is. I'm I'm known for my organizational framework. That's going to be on my tombstone. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Michael Popak. Here <laughs> lies Michael Popak, known for his organizational framework. With with bullets on the tombstone, like, like bullet one, bullet two, bullet three. <laughs> well, one thing that I won't be known for is procrastinating. So let's get right into it. And I want to talk about the recent NCAA ruling. The case was in the Supreme Court National Collegiate Athletic Association, NCAA versus Alston. To talk about this case, we are bringing in a very special guest, the lawyer at Garagos and Garagos, a friend of mine for a long time, a sports expert who you see on the cable news networks, a host of his own podcast, Conduct Detrimental, which you can download after, of course, you listen to Legal AF and the Midas Touch Brother podcast. Dan Lust, welcome to Midas Touch Legal AF.
0: That was quite the introduction, Ben, and a pleasure to be on. Uh, You know, I'm a huge sports fan. I'm probably a lawyer second to my sports fandom, but when the uh, sports case gets to the Supreme Court – Uh, you know, that has uh, all of my senses tingling. So I'm happy to come on and uh, break it down with you guys.
1: Now you get to do it both. Then you get to analyze the sports cases and you get to litigate at the highest level as a sports lawyer, as a sports litigator. How's that experience going for you, though? Because you're not just someone who analyzes these issues. You are on the front lines of these issues. You filed um, a grievance just this past week, one of the biggest grievances in NFL uh, history for a player named Juwan James, who was uh, improperly cut by the Denver Broncos. But how's that experience going for you?
0: Um, it's good. It's good. So I'd say for uh, about a handful of years, I was commenting on sports. And then, Ben, I'll give you some credit. You plucked me out of oblivion. You said, you know what? Why don't you comment on sports? And you can also, uh, you know, uh, why don't you ha- handle some sports cases for us? So I was a litigator uh, for about seven years at a, at a series of different firms, some some very big, some small. Um, but Ben, uh, whoever's listening to this already knows Ben is a master of all things social media. So, uh, you know, we, we met once upon a time online and uh, the rest is history. So, yeah, I mean, from NFL grievances Uh, I was dealing with a baseball uh, arbitration case uh, about two weeks ago out in Washington State um, via Zoom, of course, but Washington uh, jurisdiction. Um, But yeah, it's a blast. And, uh, you know, we're at a time in sports law and we'll obviously get into it. But the college sports landscape is really changing. So I know if you're a lawyer, I'm sure your phone's been ringing off the hook uh, about college sports and how these changing of laws at the state and federal level, at the school level. Uh, my phone's been ringing off the hook and obviously, uh, you know, uh, a lot of media appearances this past week. So uh, I thought it was only appropriate then when I got the call from the, uh, the podcast, we'll say the Midas Touch podcast. I mean, my podcast is pretty good, but it's not Midas Touch levels.
1: Remember who writes your paycheck there? <laughs> well, you know, I was going to say I was fishing for the compliment with the prompt. Uh, reeled it in huh? hook, line and sinker. Thank you. Thank you for gaining the prompt. But let's jump into this case. Alston. Um, You know, it uh, it stands for um, in many ways that the ruling is narrow, but its implications are incredibly broad. And we've seen even since that ruling happened on uh, June 21, a flurry of activity since then. So maybe break down the ruling and what's happened since then. So yes,
0: um, I guess we'll, I'll jump to the end really quick. There has been absolute chaos. If you're a college sports fan, you can't miss it. The past five days, uh, you know, past, past week has been insane. So here's the decision. Uh, it's a, it's a running back from West Virginia named Sean Alston who ends up suing in California because he's doing a little bit of forum shopping. He sees that California verdicts have been pretty favorable. Um, if you're suing the NCAA, um, I'm sure you guys have discussed on this podcast, uh, Ed O'Bannon once sued the NCAA in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and won. That was about five years ago. A big win for player rights. So Sean Alston, I mean, Ed O'Bannon, if people know, is a famous UCLA center, left-handed. Makes sense for him to sue in California. Doesn't make quite as much sense for a West Virginia running back like Sean Alston to sue in California. But good representation tells him, hey, you are going to get favorable treatment uh, on the West Coast. So he sues. And the case is a, is a really narrow case, as you said, Ben. It's a case about academic compensation. And what do I mean by that? That's reimbursements for books, laptops, uh, what kind of externship you can have during the summer. Uh, And the NCAA was basically putting restrictions on those. They were saying you had a cap on the amount of reimbursements that you could get. So is that the biggest deal in the world, right? Is it as a five-star recruit from high school picking, uh, we'll say, the University of Florida because they have uncapped reimbursements on their laptops and books? No, it's it's not that big of an issue. But here's the thing. Uh, In the law, timing is everything. So this case uh, went up for potential review at the Supreme Court. Uh, Alston, the running back, won at the district court level. He won at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I think a lot of people, um, you know, didn't see this case getting picked up by the Supreme Court. There was a little bit of a circuit split. Uh, Third and Seventh Circuit have ruled kind of favorably for the NCAA. Um, You know, the Ninth Circuit is not a fan of the NCAA. So they take the case a little bit of a circuit split, but why do they really take it? This is a time in our country where college sports are fundamentally changing. Uh, California, Ben, uh, your, your home state, passed uh, you know a Fair Pay to Play at the end of 2019, which allowed for the first time um, athletes to uh, student athletes to get paid from their name, name image, and likeness, basically an endorsement uh, you know uh, license. So uh, after California passed it, a bunch of states: Florida, New Mexico, Texas, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, uh, all are passing uh, state laws. So. This case um, you know, was orally argued on March 31st. The decision comes uh, June 21st. That's 10 days prior to, uh, we'll say the chaos deadline at the NCAA level. So uh, I know we can get into the decision a little bit, but that's, that's really the backdrop. That's the procedural history. And that's why the court took that case. So, What was the ruling in the case? Uh, here, here's the thing, Ben 9-0 9-0 unanimous verdict in favor of Sean Alston in favor of college athletes against the NCAA. So, Here's, here's why this has picked up so much steam this week. The decision was just an affirmance of the lower court decision. So, you know, we're, we're lawyers. They could have just wrote the affirmed and, you know, uh, they could have gone home. This is a 45-page single-space decision between a majority opinion and a concurring opinion. A concurring opinion uh, is by Justice Kavanaugh. And the line that people are really focused on uh, in, in Kavanaugh's concurrence is a really important one. And it set off really this week of chaos at college sports. He ends his concurring opinion by saying he doesn't really understand the difference uh, between student athletes and employees, employees and fair market value. And he ends his decision. The last sentence of his concurring opinion is saying the NCAA is not above the law. So uh, for those who are big, uh, you know, sports law buffs or just history buffs, people will remember. And Michael, this is probably, you know, when you were watching football, there was the Saturday you know, primetime game. It was one game for, for decades of college football. And then the uh, University of Georgia, uh, Oklahoma, sued the NCAA in a case called uh, NCAA versus Board of Regents. That's the last time in the in this last 50 years that the Supreme Court has touched college sports, other than obviously this Austin case this past week. In that Board of Regents case, very importantly, the NCAA lost and that opened up the floodgates for there to be this boom of college sports. That allowed there to be the ACC network, the Big Ten network, the Pac-12 network, and it turned really college sports from a million-dollar business until maybe um you know billion-dollar business. So I've you know when I go on these shows, I basically say the Supreme Court sprinkled their pixie dust a little bit on college sports, and it exploded. And that in that decision, when the language we saw from Judge Gorsuch, Judge Kavanaugh, a bipartisan issue, and they're saying maybe in the next 50 years, guys that athletes student athletes will be called employees they will be getting paired no, fair market it, value it'll be, it'll so, be sooner a yeah, it it'll be
2: sooner than that, sooner than that. Let, let me give a, Ben if you don't mind I'll, I'll give a little bit of a fine point on this because <clears throat> our Midas might mighty think they're in the legal AF law school so we're going to open up the antitrust seminar so in the in the decision <clears throat> I know I, I know that uh, that uh, lost is listening to this closely as well it turns on the Sherman Act which which legislates um, what's called undue restraints of trade. Um, and the first thing that this case does is firmly established that the NCAA is not immune from antitrust law. You know, They've always taken the position, well, we're a private organization, so antitrust law doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want when it comes to amateurism among athletes. And, and for once and for all, very clearly, the, the, the uh, Gorsuch decision, the Kavanaugh concurrence says, no, you're not above the law. You are governed by the antitrust law. And we are concerned about what we see as undue restraints of trade and what's referred to as price fixing. What's the price fixing? It's all the colleges getting together and saying that they're going to limit the type of compensation that they're going to pay to student athletes. They wanted the complete and unfettered ability to determine how much or how little to give to student athletes in the form of. As, as Dan Lust said earlier, laptops, but it could be more. Do we give them stipends? Do we give them anything other than room and board? Do we give them anything other than, you know how about travel expenses when they need to go home to see their families or bring their families to games? So first and foremost, this stands for the proposition that antitrust law is going to be applied to the NCAA. Why does it matter? Because the next case that comes up before this Supreme Court, I believe is going to lead, and not in 50 years, but much sooner, to actual real compensation, call it a stipend, call it a salary, because they spent a considerable amount of time in this opinion talking about the multi-billion dollar industry that Dan Lust has talked about being created by the Board of Regents case. They cited, for instance, that the president and chairman of the NCAA makes $4 million a year, that college coaches in football make $11 million a year, assistants make two and a half million dollars a year. Why are they laying that out? It was to make the juxtaposition that the student athlete upon whose back and knees and feet and legs the entire industry is premised get very little of the multi-billion dollars of these contracts. And that doesn't seem to be sitting right with this Supreme Court. The NCAA should have actually left well enough alone. The Ninth Circuit, which Dan referred to, allowed them to limit to a certain degree, the amount of compensation that was going to be paid. Um, They didn't like that. They wanted unfettered ability to do whatever they wanted towards student athletes, so they took the appeal. The NCAA took the appeal and they got hit with both sides of the stick by the Supreme Court and Kavanaugh in particular, as Dan mentioned, should really trouble them, because if he ever gets into the majority and he's pretty close, he's in the concurrence, so he's voting yes for this for this case. His comment was, in any other business other than the NCAA, this would be flatly illegal. That's the other quote from Kavanaugh, what the NCAA is doing to its employees. And he gave a very, you know, even more so than than uh, in Gorsuch, he gave a very uh, interesting set of examples. He said, if, if hospitals said that we want an entire volunteer nursing corps that we're not going to pay because that seems to be better for the provision of healthcare we would say that's crazy if we said lawyers should be paid a low amount of money because they should do this for the love of the law we would say that's illegal if they if they said you know any restaurants should have underpaid workers because people like to receive service from underpaid workers we'd go that's nuts so look There's a very sharp edge in this case that they get one more case up to them about compensation for the student athlete. And I think those floodgates that Dan Lust talked about are going to be wide open and it's going to be the next five years.
1: Dan, what happens next?
2: So this is the uh,
0: exciting part. You know, the changes already happened. So, you know, Michael did a a really good job laying that out. Um, Michael, you're very good at this. Has anyone ever told you that?
2: Silent? Okay, I, no, I had it on mute. I was waiting for dad to do something. Uh, I, I get an occasional. Oh, I, threw, I, I get an occasional compliment from both Ben and some of our listeners. Yes, thank you.
0: Well, <laughs> uh, I keep you on keep you on your toes. Don't don't hit the uh, the mute button. So quickly don't hit the mute button. Phone.
2: This is where this is live,
0: <laughs> okay. baby. All right.
2: <laughs> Put it on the mute. I'm, I'm on the brothers podcast all of a sudden. All
1: right, let's go. This is this, the, this is the crack. <laughs> <this is the, laughs> you never know where the tag teams are going to happen on the brother. Podcast. <laughs> all right. I'm ready. This, this is Socratic method
0: right here. <laughs> Combined so so here, go. here's where, here's where we go from here. And this is really, truly the exciting part. So for two years, uh, and, and I mentioned this 2019 legislation, fair pay to play, Governor Newsom, whether you love him, you hate him, he signed this bill into law on LeBron show. And they basically said, OK, the next couple of years, really, you know, 2021 of July is going to be that first date. Florida, California, all these different states are passing laws. So the NCA gets on their high horse and they try to start preparing for the floodgates. So they start creating something called uh, the NCA's version of name, image and likeness. So what that would do is if, you know, California passed fair pay to play and Florida passed a version of it and let's say a handful of states what this NCAA name, image, and likeness would do, would cover all of the other states. So it would basically raise the floor, and everyone would be covered in some way, shape, or form, all 50 states and all the schools in every 50 state. So for two years, they're working on this bad boy, and they're ready to release it. And then this decision comes out. And the NCAA, which we know uh, know, moves very slowly like molasses, they said, whoa, 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 record scratch moment. We actually cannot now release the NCA version of name Image Likeness because we're worried that whatever we release, like Michael explained, could be potentially violative of the antitrust law. Any restrictions that they put on the athletes could be viewed as a violation of antitrust law. So, literally, at the 11th hour, July 1st is the first time in our country, those states I mentioned, Florida, Georgia, that comes into effect, that state law, July 1st. So, with a week to go, the NCA goes, okay, I know we've been working on this thing for two years. We're actually going to, we're waving the white flag schools conferences it's now on you to come up with your own rules and that was their way of saying hey we are not controlling this market it's a free market schools can come up with whatever they want the problem is from an administrative standpoint a logistical standpoint it's a real nightmare to put this on the school's hands with a week to go when the NCA had two years so the NCA is very much reacting to this really scathing language uh, and I think they are worried about more lawsuits. And to Michael's point, that would only expedite the time frame that their their version of amateurism would come. So here's come my down. question
2: for, for you, Dan Lust. Do you think that the NCAA, seeing the writing on the wall, which is pretty stark right now, comes up with a compensation program that finds a way to, whether you call it pay, compensate, stipend the athlete, that is the basis of their entire their entire non educative business model. Do you think they do it? I don't think the if emphasis on NCA, I don't think they do it. They've said to schools this week, we
0: are now schools if you do it, we won't punish you. We're basically removing one of our bylaws that allowed you know us to punish the school if they did it. I think the NCA is out of that game, and then it raises a bigger point: what is the NCA's role in college sports moving forward? If state law is going to abide, school law is going to abide, maybe federal law at some point is going to abide. And and Michael, you 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 laid it out. Mark Emmert is paid four million dollars for to me to be a complete figurehead. I watched the Senate hearings with the NCA on, on June tenth. They they had another Senate hearing on June on June seventeenth. Mark Emmert for, for getting paid that much money takes zero accountability. So I, I don't know what the NCA's rule is moving forward. Uh, you know, Ben and I connected during uh, the pandemic. We were speaking, you know, conference, the conferences basically took all the power away from the NCAA. They were the ones that could decide whether or not we'll play college football. It's going to be in the fall or the spring or if we're going to cancel certain sports. So you take away that, right, the power to play games, and then you take away paying athletes. That's now in the school's hands and the state's hands. I don't know what the NCA has left. So, I, you know, Michael, you, we're talking about what what the employee designation is going to look like for athletes. I don't know if the NCA exists in 10 years. I, I don't know. There's a world where it just does not exist.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, you know, I think it's one of those things where it will be to be continued. Dan, you will continue to be on the Midas Touch Legal AF podcast. And look, at the end of the day, the ruling essentially, you know, when we break down what the, uh, what the opinion and the concurring opinion says is that the NCAA is like a criminal cartel. I mean, they're operating like a criminal cartel. They're, they're an unlawful entity that is exploiting workers. I mean, that's at its heart of it. It did deal with that narrow issue, but like criminal cartels, they're not going to want to give away their power right away. They're not just going to say, hey, you know, we're, we're good. I think, Popak, they fight. And they'll try to make small gives, you know, over the next, you know, year, two years, their goal is how do we you know, how do we keep this, you know, uh, the, all these benefits going over the next decade, two decades? And and let's make as much money as uh, as, as we can before the uh, ship totally sinks. That's my gut of what. You, gut yeah. Of. You have a
2: Supreme Court and Kavanaugh who thinks that this is an organization that regularly engages in illegal price fixing. That's a problem. You need to address that. I don't think they can bury their head in the sand, although I follow Lust's <clears throat> analytics about. You know, the the sort of demasculization or the defanging of the NCAA over time becoming less relevant. But as long as they're still going to exist as a trade organization, they're going to have to do some fixing.
1: I'm right. Well, t- 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 let, let, can we talk about cheerleading for a second? Because I really, you know, I, I love that lofty, in depth conversation about the NCAA ruling, but I definitely want to pivot to this cheerleading uh, uh, opinion. Um, it was an eight to one majority opinion that was penned by Justice Breyer. Um, Popa, can you tell us about this case? Yeah, um, it's it's actually you know an important First Amendment uh, case uh, that deals with. The Rights and Powers of Public Institutions. Lust, I'd love for you to stay on for this as well, if you have some time, because I'd love to hear your thoughts about this case and its broader implications. I'm
0: not going I'm not going anywhere. You you got stuck with me for a little bit. All
1: right. Right. Lust, her cheerleader. He said there's a sports
2: angle here. We're going to we're going to work it. The uh, find it. The the case, uh, Ben, that um, that you're talking about is interesting because it really lays out the difference, different ways that the First Amendment plays out on a school campus. And they make a big, the Supreme Court makes a big distinction and has for years between on-campus speech and off-campus speech. So I don't want to mislead our listeners to think that, that school, especially a secondary school, high school, and middle school kids have unfettered First Amendment rights on campus. They don't. But this was not a case that arose because of conduct on campus. It had to do with off-campus conduct by a cheerleader. I think she was in middle school or 14 was school. years old. She was 14. She, was 14.
1: So she wanted so to be on the varsity team, right, but right, she all right. got so cut she's, from varsity. So
2: She's in high school and she's cut from varsity and she goes to JV. I mean, this is every parent's nightmare of sobbing children who don't make the cut. This child took to social media. Okay, as many as many do, and on TikTok or Twitter, she dropped a chat. Sorry, you got to be all connected right. with the youth, Popak. You All right. Gotta... I thought TikTok was connected with the youth, but anyway, you know
0: At least he didn't say snap face. I, I saw that coming all out of your mouth.
2: All right, all right. I, apparently, ageism is alive and well on this broadcast. <laughs> I am the I am the oldest of the legal AF people here. So anyway, I thought I got social media right. I got it wrong. So she on Snapchat, she dropped the is it is is the term F bomb, guys? Am I using that term correctly? Yeah, but you can say fuck on the Midas. I know, but, you know, I I try to balance Michael. I of the case, but I have to balance Ben. I have to be the other guy. So I say F-bomb. So she dropped the F-bomb a number of times about the school and her squad and the cheerleaders and the coaches. And specifically
1: uh, said, fuck school, fuck softball, (laughs) fuck cheerleading. Fuck everything was her little Snapchat. That's
2: detention, Ben. That's detention. You can't stand that. And the school decided that that was violative of their school conduct. And they tried to muzzle her and sanction her and penalize her. So our listeners are probably thinking, OK, some freshman in high school got penalized or detention, as Lust just said, because she she dropped the F-bomb or said the word fuck on Snapchat. OK, who cares? All right. Who cares is her parents decided to, to make it a federal case and to take it up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And you might be thinking, doesn't the U.S. Supreme Court... Have better things to do than this, and as Breyer said in his decision, sometimes you, when you're when you're protecting free speech, you have to protect the superfluous at the same t- in order to protect the necessary. So, is the F bomb on Snapchat really? Is that really what they're after? No, they wanted to finally establish a bright line test for off campus First Amendment exercise, and they're declaring to the world and to the student bodies out there that if they're off campus and they do things exercising their First Amendment rights, they can't be penalized, the Constitution protects them. And I, there, were, there were two interesting lines, both in the eight to one decision by Breyer and by Thomas's, he was the one in dissent, and in Thomas's um, uh, dissent in the, in the majority, I thought the interesting line was, and it will drive the QDP up the wall, Briar GQ, GQP GQP. You know, I never <laughs> <The> Republicans <laughs> off the wall. Breyer says in quote, public schools are the nurseries of democracies. We're going to talk in a bit about DeSantis fearing just that, that schools are incubators for thought and for democratic ideals. And he wants to kill it. That'll come in the next segment. But, but think about that. The, the majority opinion, in the United States declared that, Public schools are the nurseries of democracy. Now, we're not saying Democrats. We know where our politics are on this show, but democracy. And he's right about that. Now, that doesn't mean they've changed the laws that it relates to on campus. And what Thomas said in his dissent was basically creating a cheerleaders can harm the high school program exception, which I've never heard of. Yes, I'm sure a cheerleader could harm the program, but I'm not sure that's the measure of the exercise of First Amendment. But Tom is sort of uh, combining the law in the area of on-campus exercise of free speech, thought that this person had gone too far and, and therefore had harmed the program or the brand of the high school, whatever that is, and therefore he was in dissent. But, you know, a powerful decision and one that our listeners who are parents uh, and students should be mindful of that the First Amendment is robust, but just make sure you do it off campus. This uh,
1: specific student, I, w- I have a question for you in a second, Dan, this specific student, Brandy Levy, when she filed this was 14. She's now 18 years old. She goes to Bloomsburg University, she said she never really thought that this case would be a Supreme Court case, but it was important to fight for her rights. I'm very interested to to talk to her. I'd love to know more about her and, the, oh, and your, the sister. your sister. Your sister should talk to story. her. I would love for my sister to interview Brandy <laughs> Levy. I'd love to set that up. But I think there may be something deeper at, at play going on here, Dan. We In the previous case, we talked about a 9-0 decision. Here, we're talking about an 8-1 decision, talking about uh, our elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools as the incubators of democracy. I, I, am I looking into this too much, Dan? Or is the Supreme Court, though, taking certain cases also in these incredibly divisive and partisan times where they could find and kind of forge agreements and Popak, We've talked about lots of unanimous decisions, you know, in the past week. And so, and that's not normally typical because we were used to these, you know, six, three, five, four, and these hyper kind of partisan cases. Do you think they're also picking cases where there's going to be an agreement where they could reaffirm some support for democracy? to send subtle signals uh, to the nation? Or is this just the way these cases are coming out and I'm overanalyzing it, Dan?
0: See, I, I think it's a great point. And Ben, you know how my mind works. I, I I, think about sports, right? I don't really think about issues as being left or right issues because I just think about sports. Uh, this sports issue, the NCAA versus Austin issue is not an issue that's on the left or the right. This issue about freedom of speech in the school is not a left or right issue. And I think Michael laid it out. But for Justice Thomas, I think going off the rails a little bit, citing cases from the 1800s, I think this would have been another unanimous opinion. Not never a good look if you're citing cases from the 1800s. That's a uh, unless it's like uh, like uh, Barbary you know, versus Madison. The,
2: <laughs> is Paul's graph an 1800s case? Is that <laughs> well? well uh, you know what? We're going to talk offline. That is a more recent case, but that is not a Supreme Court case. We'll talk offline.
0: <laughs> I, I knew it was not a get, get out of here. Okay, it's a Long Island Railroad case. Ben knows what I'm talking. That's an old case. Um, I have I have a line from this case that I thought was just wrong from Thomas. So, uh, Michael, you, you, you're glossing over the, the the juicy part here. He goes: a profanity-laced screed delivered on social media or at the mall has as much uh, has as much different effect on a football program when done by a regular student than when done by the captain of the football team. So maybe Clarence Thomas did go to high school. If the captain of the football team or the is a social, or, or if, if, <laughs> if the captain of the football team does that tirade, that's very different than a regular student doing it so I think Thomas just missed the boat on this I, I think you know honestly I don't even think that's the analysis who the student is you know since when did your your first amendment rights depend if you were the captain of the football team or a regular student I, I think Thomas just maybe, maybe he was like you know what we can't have two unanimous decisions in a week I, I, I gotta I gotta mix it up a little bit then, <laughs> our, then our country would be too put together
2: I'm not sure Thomas ever saw like the breakfast club I'm not sure he understands high school's social strata <laughs> Opak, oh, Is there anything? To There's a
0: hierarchy. Said, there is a hierarchy.
2: <laughs> but, to ben, but to Ben's but to Ben's point, you know, I I tend to agree with Ben on this podcast. But I hear, I really do. I, I think that that this is this might be Roberts, and we've talked about it in prior podcasts. This might be Roberts at play again. Roberts is trying Chief Justice to, Roberts for those listeners. Yes, thank you, Chief Justice Roberts. That he's been trying to hold the center for a while now against an external tide that's against him. I mean, literally an insurrection steps from the Supreme Court, an internal kind of knitting in of several new justices appointed by Trump in Coney Barrett, uh, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. And he's trying, and the loss of Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, who Associate Justice Kennedy, who was always sort of the center of, center left, center right, and, and held the center together for making decisions like the one you just saw. So I think what we might be seeing at play is just Chief Justice Roberts trying to find his footing and trying to continue to make this the Roberts court and where he can get opinions that go to social issues that are part of the fabric of our democracy and get close to unanimity. He's going to take that opportunity. Because that explains why you take a cheerleader case. Do you take it because you really I mean, you really care about Brandy? No, but you care about the broader issues around democracy and the ability to declare that that public schools And he got, you know, eight people to say this public schools are the the nursery or the cradle of democracy. So I agree with you. I think this is Roberts trying to put his imprimatur back on the court and get it back to, uh, you know, center bubble if you're using a level at home because it's been off for the last uh, couple of years.
1: we move from the cradle of democracy to the armpit of fascism, your home state, Popak. Florida. Wait, my home state is and- New Jersey. My, I lived in, my, lived in Miami. I'm from New Jersey. Okay, go ahead. And, and look, this is, you know, I, I think that Florida wants to be democratic, but it, time and time again, I think it's brought down this path by demagogues, you know, like uh, governor Death Santis here. Um what is governor Death Santis doing in in Florida Popak here? Yep. I mean, he's banned, you know, the, the, one of the things that the GQP has elevated is like critical race theory, um which is Uh, not something that's generally discussed with that label, but they basically use critical race theory as a way of saying we shouldn't be talking about just systemic racism generally. We shouldn't be talking about slavery. We shouldn't be talking about the 1619 Project. We shouldn't be talking about things that actually happened in our country where white people repressed and enslaved black people. And they put it under this label, you know, banning critical race theory, which I, I haven't even heard of that term, honestly. You know, for the past month or two months, I know what it's trying to get at. So, one of the things that uh, that uh, happened in Florida was banning of the critical race theory, um, and then this other bill that uh, DeSantis introduced this week, where he banned where he was saying the indoctrination going on in colleges he didn't ban anything but he basically put out these surveys that were meant to intimidate and harass public school uh, public university students public university teachers um you know and in many cases some people read it as requiring uh students and teachers to reveal their political affiliation it it will
2: It will a mandatory survey of viewpoint diversity. Nothing says totalitarian fascism like the governor requiring people to disclose their political leanings and their viewpoint. So, so here, here's the problem with Florida. We've talked about this before. We have a governor down there who doesn't understand the first amendment, nor his staff because his staff is letting him do this stuff too. Why do I say that? Because he just passed three bills. We're going to talk about two of them. One of them is outlawing critical race theory, which look, I've been a liberal Democrat my whole life. I never, I never heard of that, but it sounds a lot like the 1920s and banning evolution from being taught. I thought we, I thought we cleared this up already Uh, in the scopes trial, you know, where Clarence Darrow came in because a poor science teacher in Alabama or Mississippi, wherever it was, wanted to teach evolution as a science, which it is. And it was banned. Now we have the governor saying, um, we're going to ban um, race analysis in in our in our textbooks and history books, so we got the, the governor deciding on that outrageous <clears throat> that's wrong. But then he said, you know what? Let's go further. Let's go to colleges. Let's find out what's going on on campuses. We think there's a viewpoint diversity problem. I love when they've co-opted the language of the, the liberal wing talking about diversity, but, but doing it in a perverse way. So we're going to do viewpoint diversity. How do we get to the bottom of that? And First Amendment expression on campus, because we think right wing Republican groups on campus and professors are being gagged or diminished in some way. So let's do a survey, mandatory, that all the colleges and universities have to roll out, along with a code of conduct that's now going to be memorialized in legislation in Florida that every college and university has to adopt with a a grievance procedure, because there's a theory that young Republicans on campus are being denied their First Amendment rights. And if they are, and this is my retort to the governor. There's a thing already on the books called the Constitution and the First Amendment. You don't need a state statute to enforce the First Amendment. We have a First Amendment for that. So I really don't get this is all window dressing for his campaign to run for president. And he, and he's, you know, he's he's uh, pandering to that group locally and nationally. That seem to be, you know, again, we, we talked about it two podcasts ago. The Republicans have to create crisis now. This is crisis creation, so they can run as the saviors to fix the crisis. We don't have a diversity viewpoint crisis in higher education. It's made, that's a made-up thing. We don't have a problem with racial viewpoints being taught in textbook. That's a made-up thing. But why do they make it up? So he can stand at a middle school back to middle school. He actually (laughs) announced the passage of these college oriented bills in front of a a very hard hitting group of, you know, 11 year olds in the press um, because he's a coward. So we so we have that. So we have HB. It's it's House Bill 233. For those that want to look it up, it's 12 pages long. Um, it is against what they're calling educational indoctrination in higher education. Did, did DeSantis go to college or university? Does he not understand the, the differing viewpoints that already exist and that people... Look, I, I don't know what he thinks goes on in these things, but people come out. Some are Democrat or, or Democratic-leaning. Some are Republican. Some are independent. Some are apolitical. That's what comes out of colleges and universities. How do I know that? Because half the country thinks it's Republican or, or, or identifies with being Republican. And the other half identifies with being Democrat or uh, with a small group in the middle. You know, I'm getting the numbers off. A small group in the middle that's independent. So what does he think that's going on? That there's a factory in higher education that's generating like widgets, all Democrats, because that's what's coming out.
1: Look, I have. You know plenty- what's interesting here. What's interesting here at Popoc too, is that this is also kind of an attack on the military because these diverse viewpoints are being taught in the military. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if you saw or Dan, if you saw they had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, um, and the Republican GQP members, the gates of the worlds, were cross-examining him and like mocking him for teaching diversity within the military academy. And and the answer was that that that, that Chairman Milley gave was interesting. He was like, I don't necessarily know what you're talking about, but what you're sounding like, if if that's what critical race theory is, that's something I think I'd want to teach at the military academy. I want to know why there is white rage. I want to know the history of systemic oppression, because as a military person, I want to know how we could all get better. I want multiple viewpoints out there. He said, I read Communist books, not because I'm a communist. I'd like to know how other people think we were allowed to read other other items. I'm not sure if you saw that, Dan, but and I'm not sure if you're able to comment outside of sports, but what do you think about this? (laughs)
0: um <laughs> i do know other things outside of sports I just sports pretend we
1: said
2: sports and then then. oh sports got it oh. light
0: bulb no no i i think i think just on a, on a human level i think what we saw after the george floyd saga right i think our country had to kind of take a step back and kind of figure out what we don't know so I, I i'm with you guys that term critical race theory is not something that I'm, I'm i've heard of before but the concept of hey we're teaching new things in school we want to try to kind of figure out what what we did wrong and educate our youth like I don't really think there's a problem to it, and Ben, I, I, I love that line of like you know thought process. I, I read and I listen to a lot of podcasts of people I don't necessarily agree with, but I just like I just like listening to how other people think. I, you know, you can find smart people on the left, smart people on the right, you can find smart people all over the place. Um, but to say that we're not going to teach a certain school of thought because I, I I don't really understand the reasoning. I see the outrage. I think there was a uh, like a school board over in uh, in Virginia that had like a complete riot uh, over a critical race theory at the end of the school board meeting early this week, I think in Loudoun County. But I just I don't understand the outrage of just like we're going to teach this thing in school, like just like we learned about the dinosaurs, we learned about the Holocaust, like. We're just learning about something that happened in our country. I just I don't see the harm. Well, in
1: I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I think the harm in that if you're a Republican is that people who, quote, unquote, receive higher levels of education and who are opened up to all these ideas vote Democratic, usually because those ideas are embracing of others. The, the idea what, what motivates the GQP and the DeSantis of the world, unfortunately, is hating the others is creating white rage is scaring their base it's not how do we help all people there's also the pr element that pope that the referenced reference there that this is just you know also just a fake crisis that they want to create but if you want to delve deeper kind of intellectually i think that they that the republican base wants to keep people in a constant state of fear in a constant state of not being educated because the more educated they get they go Hey, let's embrace some of these ideas. These are good ideas. And what they want to do is they want to hoard the education in a small group of millionaires and billionaires who have it and basically convince their base who supports them that they're being screwed over by actually the workforce of the country, which is a broad coalition of of immigrants and diverse people who help I'll, serve. The, edge of the country. I'll go one further, as we've said before, the
2: Republican Party is a, by its very nature, a narrow party whose policies, if you put them on a clean sheet of paper without labeling it Republican or Democrat, and you just ask people, are you supportive of these policies? They usually aren't um, at all. And the only way that a narrow party can win national office, and this was discovered by starting with Nixon, going to Lee Atwater, going to Karl Rove, going to Cheney, all the way through to today, is the the politics of fear. Republicans have to peddle in the politics of fear to drive a base um, and motivate a base because their normal natural base is much narrower than the Democratic base, period, has been for the last hundred years. So what do you have to do? Whether you call it crisis or fear, whether you call it gays in the military, gay marriage, which was starting 30 years ago. Abortion. These are, these have to be the wedge issues that are raised by the Republican Party or they cannot win national office.
1: Totally agree with you. And and how could they win national office, too, when their leadership are people like Judy Giuliani? I mean, Rudy Giuliani from your newly embraced hometown of New York and Dan Lust is from uh, New York. You know, I was reading this book the other day uh, about the kind of debt crisis, the overinflated markets in the late 80s. The book is called The Den of Thieves. Um, And The Den of Thieves, an incredible book from Wall Street Journal writers, kind of chronicles the rise of that era in Wall Street where markets were just completely and entirely manipulated by a handful of people who engaged in insider trading. But Giuliani's the good guy in the book. You know, the book was published in 1991, 1992, right around when Giuliani was was running for mayor when he was the United States attorney in New York. But Giuliani, the ultimate one of the ultimate ironies is uh, Giuliani prosecuted Michael Milken, um, who was one of the people manipulating the market back then, who then Giuliani helped basically get the pardon from Donald Trump, um, you know, 30, 30, 40 years later when Giuliani took on, you know, this new persona. Um, so to see, though, Giuliani portrayed a certain way, you know, in in the book as I'm reading it and then you see, well, Giuliani's being suspended from the practice of law in New York and he's being suspended because he lied in front of 70 plus federal courts about the election. He filed phony, phony briefs. He went out there, you know, saying just complete lies about the election um, and the appellate division in the New York Supreme Court said Thursday it was, quote, immediately suspending Giuliani's license. This is an interim suspension so that Giuliani has a certain amount of days where he can respond for an opportunity for reinstatement. Giuliani's son went on TV, claimed it was a, uh, a partisan <laughs> which China. Uh, people made some incredible yeah, great he, means. He, where... he went in parking lot. I don't know about TV. He did another he went parking on lot. Went. And people did those incredible memes with him in front of Taco Bells and, and all these different locations. But Popak, what's yeah. going on here?
2: Yeah. And let me, back, let me back into it by picking up what you just said, because I practiced, I started my career in New York in 1991, right at the height of Rudy Giuliani. I have very close friends and mentors who I started my career with who, who worked with him, number one, like the number two under him in his office. And I've spoken to those people recently, and I won't, I won't name names, but they just look down at their shoes and shake their head, and they tell me they do not recognize this person that is now calling himself Rudy Giuliani, because that's not the Rudy Giuliani that they, that they know and that they work for at all, 100%, all the way through being the, 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 nation's, the nation's mayor. You and I have talked about Rudy Giuliani could have done and should have done what somebody like Sully has done with his career after being so brave in landing the plane in the Hudson and just becoming a preeminent statesperson as it relates to aviation and politics and patriotism. That could have been Rudy Giuliani's career. For whatever reason, he just went off the rails. Not only is he now being investigated separately from this license suspension that we've spoken about before for um, criminal involvement with Ukraine by at least two prosecutors' offices. So he's got that to worry about. But he just lost his law license. And not only because the appellate division first department, which uh, Dan and I will talk about in a minute, which regulates all lawyers who operate in Manhattan, it goes by your department. I'm in the first department. So those are the judges that, that decide your fate. But it also he also got temporarily suspended, subject to a future hearing, immediately, which is a drastic remedy that the first department uses usually only when somebody has been accused of stealing money or is they don't want them out there taking any more new clients because they're a danger to the legal community and to society. That's how drastic immediate suspension is. And it can only be done under a finding of uncontroverted facts, which support the misconduct. In this case, the violation of three rules of the New York Rules of professional conduct dealing with false statements. One of the reasons it's uncontroverted, frankly, is that Giuliani is a terrible lawyer for himself. And he, I know he's got two lawyers and I've seen their names, but they did a terrible job in defending him at the suspension level because you've got on one hand, the, attorney, the attorney's grievance committee, general counsel, that's who brings this kind of case, the attorney grievance committee for the first department. And then you've got the, the five judges, the five justices of the first department, which is an appellate, an appellate level, the second highest, not the top appellate court in New York, but the second highest court in New York for appeals. Giuliani apparently didn't submit really much of anything in opposition to their position that he should be immediately suspended. They even commented in the decision that, "Well, your affidavit is pretty poor. You reference other affidavits that you've you've created, but you did not file with us. You reference a spreadsheet of some vote problems in Michigan or in Pennsylvania, but you didn't attach the spreadsheet. You say there's some confidential information that only you know that you can't share with the the regulators for your law license, which we find incredulous because." What could you possibly know that you couldn't share even in confidence with the regulators of your of your bar license? So they they didn't buy that one. And they basically said, You didn't give us anything. So the entire factual background that's been presented by the attorney grievance committee attorney, we have to accept as true. You lied about votes in Michigan. You lied about votes in Pennsylvania. You filed briefs that had lies in them. And that's a problem. And one of the lies, for instance, that they raised is he went on television. I don't know if this was the parking lot for the Four Seasons landscaping company or or, or whatever. As we said, Giuliani seemed to love parking lots. But he went on he went on television and in briefs and said that, for instance, I think it was in Pennsylvania, that there were only one point eight million people that requested absentee ballots, yet 2.5 million ballots came back. Well, that sounds bad. That sounds like if more ballots came in than than went out, that sounds like there's fraud, except he's just dead wrong. Three million people asked for absentee ballots. That's a fact. And 2.5 million returned them and voted. That's not fraud. That's just really high absentee voting. That's okay in this kind of election. So they pointed that as an example. So again, as you said, Ben, to start the segment, uh, Giuliani temporarily suspended, immediately suspended. He can't take a client. He can't give advice. He can't collect a fee. And if they catch him doing that, and with this guy, he's so like not, not with it. He's sort of so out of it. He could accidentally like continue to practice law and get even more sanctions. And if you look even more carefully at the decision, it's yes, it's temporary, but they said that based on the conduct that's being alleged that they envision there will be substantial permanent sanctions against Rudy in the future. He's got a tremendous uh, uphill battle here to avoid not a permanent suspension, at least for five years, I would think of his license, which takes him out of the running really practicing law anywhere in the country. Once he loses his New York license, I think he'll have to lose. He probably is a member of the DC bar because a lot of us are, he'll probably lose that right away. All the federal bars will bar him. And then he'll be out of, he'll be out of business as being a lawyer. He'll go back to being until he gets indicted. He'll be, he'll go back to being whatever he is, a lobbyist, a consultant, whatever it is, but that's where we are with the suspension.
1: So Dan Rudy used to go to Yankee games.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Ben. You you were saying the story from uh, '91. Uh, I, well, my dog making a cameo at Rudy Giuliani. Um, yeah, but I, I remember Giuliani from the 2001. You know, from the you know the World Trade Center bombings. He, he he did a fantastic job for New York back then. Bipartisan support. Everyone was a fan of Rudy. And uh, you know, if he had just kind of gone off into the sunset and you know ate into the background, he'd have this ultimate Q rating, 100. Yeah. percent So. I don't know whose whose strategy it was for him to get so aligned in
1: politics, but I guess it, not uh, not just the
2: bombings, the the actual yeah the actual the actual attack by the planes on the train. I just, I just he think he was the
1: mayor for both. Yeah, and yeah. look, you know, obviously Dan's dog is a Rudy Giuliani supporter. Um, I can't clearly, clearly, clearly the one, the one point where your dog opined is on the Giuliani question. And so my view is that really the only remaining supporters of Giuliani are GQP members and dogs. Um, so and uh, which... go- Golden Doodles to be specific. <laughs> God, well, of that, that kind of ruins it. Golden Doodles are too cute to possibly support Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> I was imagining some other form of like uh, pounded dot. Well, I won't go there. There's lots it, it, of people. You thought, you thought I people. had a
0: bad dog? No, 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 dog I,
1: no, dog. no, 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 no. Truthfully, whatever dog I describe right now as a Giuliani <laughs> supporter will cause me to lose support amongst yes. And lust. Dan, you're yeah. the golden doodle of this. And so let me podcast. take back, let me take back that dog support Giuliani. So that did I, not, I that actually
0: happened. think you know what I'll save you, Ben. She actually heard you say squirrel. Uh, that's actually what happened. That's you know, what you, you said, say. Giuliani, but she heard squirrel with her dog ears.
1: And that is the connection there. Giuliani is a squirrel. Your dog heard <laughs> squirrel. Your dog, like all cute dogs, want to attack the squirrel. Squirrels. Squirrels are ultimate. uh,
0: It's an ultimate bipartisan issue for dogs. Hey, squirrels.
1: (laughs) uh, Definitely, definitely true. I don't think we have a lot of squirrel support out there. I mean, uh, but anyway, if I offended you by comparing Giuliani to squirrels, I apologize for that as well. But let me talk about something I know I will not be offending you about, which is the recent announcement that the Trump organization could be facing criminal charges. Um, in a district attorney inquiry out of New York, um, we've known for a long time that Cy Vance has been investigating the Matt DA has been investigating Donald Trump, the Trump family members, the Trump organization, and it looks like indictments may be imminent against the Trump organization, not necessarily Trump individually yet. We know that there still is a a criminal grand jury out there, though, with respect to Trump and his family members. And then we also learned that the Trump organization um, decided it would be suing New York for wrongful, for quote unquote, wrongful termination of contracts, um, where after the insurrection, New York City terminated various city related contracts with the Trump organization, like the ice rink. It says in this article that I read that the like on the ice rink and on uh, Trump golf links that the organization Trump organization was making about $17 million per year from operating those ice to, rinks. I've and been the to the ice rink. It's possible. Really? It's that yeah. much of a cash. cash. Wow. That's yeah. uh, that's uh, yeah, saying that's, that's pretty incredible. So what's going on here? I mean, to me, obviously Popok, yeah. those lawsuits are going nowhere. Those are typical Trump, Projection, Trump never wins these lawsuits. Like he has a history of like we know from the uh, elect post elections that he lost, you know, seventy but seventy lawsuits. But he has a whole history of filing lawsuits and losing lawsuits. I mean, he is almost the like a role model of what a vexatious litigant is. He just has a lot of money, so he's not called a vexation litigant. But he has a history of just filing lawsuits. Trying to screw with people um, and delay the inevitable, and this just seems to be more of the yeah. same. So
2: the, the let's let's go to the indictment because you and I talked about it four or five podcasts ago. Um, Cy Vance, who's going to be leaving office at the beginning of the year, and his replacement has really al- already been selected. Alvin Bragg is going to be the new Manhattan District Attorney, <clears throat> uh, a fine a fine choice by the by the voters. I think Cy wants to get this indictment wrapped up and be able to transition the prosecution of the case over to Alvin Bragg um, and the existing long-term members of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office who will remain on the case after Sy leaves. So we had said, and I know a lot of our followers and listeners were like, yeah, we'll believe it when we see it. We've heard this before. This is happening. Um, The insider information that's been reported in the media is that The Manhattan DA has now reached out in the last day, has told the Trump organization as a courtesy that the indictment is coming and it is coming next week. We originally talked about uh, the long term chief operating officer, uh, sorry, chief financial officer Weisselberg, who was separately being investigated and prosecuted and possibly indicted for tax evasion and tax fraud related to Trump because he had all sorts of perks like private school tuition and other things paid by the Trump organization and nobody paid income tax on that. They're squeezing, of course, Weisselberg to get him to flip. But even if Weisselberg didn't flip and maybe he has already, because that's not going to be in the media, they're indicting that somebody in the Trump organization and the entire Trump organization. And if it's somebody, it's, it's going to be former, for, former 45, I think next week, and you and I will talk about it in the next podcast. So I think it's, I think it's tax fraud, you know, this is this is the office of prosecutors, along with the New York Attorney General, that's had the tax returns for two years. They all they've been doing is mining hundreds of thousands of pages, if not millions of pages, of tax returns and attachments for year after year after year. I think we're going to see tax fraud. I think we're going to see mortgage fraud. I think we might see insurance fraud. Um, all under under an indictment of. Trump and the Trump
1: organization as a criminal. And you enterprise. see that happening as soon as bold. You think that's going to happen week. in the next next week yeah. with Donald Trump directly mentioned? Well, def, Well, if the Trump I mean, definitely mentioned, but Trump as a criminal defendant ne- next week, that's the right. bold
2: prediction. All right. Ever, I'm out there. Week. I'm out there. OK, Trump organization definitely gets indicted next week. Donald Trump may be a superseding indictment a month later, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if Trump gets indicted next week. They've reached out to the organization. The organization wow. is headed by former 45. I mean, does Ivanka get, get indicted? I don't know, but it's going to be, you and I will do nothing but talk about that indictment <laughs> after on the next podcast. It is coming. Prosecutors do not pick up the phone and call the lawyers for the defense and warn them of the impending indictment. And, the, and because with indictments, Come arrests. okay? it's not just indictment. You stay in your bathrobe. We've talked about this in the past. You have to get processed. Somebody from the Trump organization will probably have to go down to jail, you know, and come back out. In some way, shape, or form. So next week's going to be a very interesting week for all of us to watch. In the meantime, as a
1: complete—you just uh, said it so casually. I, I'm just, you know, I've been talking about it with week. you for 14 episodes, but I've predicted it before 2022. Dan, did you know that Popak was this bold or is your dog still chasing a squirrel in the background?
0: she's she's outside we put her outside but michael i have a question for you ahead, I'm,
1: I'm a i'm a sports
0: betting guy right so you're yeah, saying right. in the next in the next week that will occur what type of odds would you put on that would you put that at like two to one three to one or are you going like the other way you're saying minus 300 that that would happen no,
2: um i i don't bet as much as you do i i think there is a 85 <laughs> percent chance that before the that week is huge is over, that before the week is over the trump organization will be indicted I believe next week, if it rolls over to the following week, don't kill me, but it's going to be in the month. I think it's going to be in the month of June.
0: You just said 85% chance. So if someone did find one of these offshore betting sites and they bet that and they bet the house. on it, Prop bet. Prop bet right now.
1: But but, but, but it might not not be in existence in the world in the next week. But the subtlety of the language there, do you see how he hedged though on the eighty-five percent? Is eighty-five percent just a Trump organization? He left out the boldest of the prediction, which would be what do you call that when you when you do the two for one, the, the two for one bet? is it called the two for one? The, the, oh, yeah, the, parlay. the, the, par, the parlay. The parlay parlay the parlay.
0: Overlinings the, playbook. Talking my language here. See, Michael, but the problem you said if I'm wrong don't kill me, but people are going to make a wager based on your advice. And you all might right. be sleeping with. We the are not in that. I dish. don't
2: know what disclaimer now, Ben, we have to do because of lust. But I am not giving betting advice <laughs> <laughs> at all. <laughs> offshore or onshore. Just my own view, which is me and my dog and, and just putting percentages history. on it. No big deal. I've all just right. made giant proclamations indictment. Other than that indictment next week of Trump organization, how high it goes. In next week, I don't know, and I will will come up with a side bet that I will do something if I if I'm wrong.
1: Wow, bold predictions! That's what this here is about. This is le- the Legal
2: yeah. AF podcast. I'm, well, now, you know, it's, it's some friends.
1: also friends. It's also about yeah preserving preserving the credibility if we're right. So All I'm right. hoping I'm hoping. Well, look, I do think that Donald Trump personally. I've been saying it on the show. He will personally be indicted. In 2021. That's a prediction that I can make confidently. Next week, next week, that's again, I think we're developing a philosophy that we've created earlier. Structure, Popakian, but bold predictions, (laughs) Popakian as well. Yeah. And And Popakian both combines a Popak philosophy. And the fact that our firm, my partner, Mark, is Armenian. So you have the IAN as well. That is the Popakian philosophy. Now, just going to this Trump lawsuit, the legal AF analysis here is that Trump's lawsuit is complete bullshit. He's filing a civil lawsuit against the against the New York City. Can we mention one thing?
2: Can we mention one thing just to remind? So the the de Blasio administration invoked a provision in the contract because Ben and I like to talk about contract provisions. Sort of the morals clause, which I'm sure Ben knows from some of his other clients. The morals clause says that if you have committed a crime or done something, my
1: clients follow the morals clause. <laughs> I didn't say all the time, <laughs> I
2: left it neutral. I just said, you know about it. That if you, if, if a person or a contracting party violates the law, commits a crime, does something immoral. Then the other contracting party has a way out of the contract. It's usually with celebrities, you know, like a newscaster turns out to be a sex harasser. They can terminate that person's contract and say, "We, we really don't want to be in business with you. You're sort of unsavory. Goodbye. That's what the de Blasio administration has done. They've said that the Trumps have committed a crime, the crime being the fomenting of the Jan 6.
1: And by the way, the Morals Clause doesn't have to necessarily be an actual charged crime. Oftentimes, With hypothetical clients if there is a criminal indictment that per se is something that can be pointed to by the corporation to say hey you violated it but it could also be just an an, an unsavory allegation that's out there that has some basis it could be an internal investigation in this case it could be hey we all saw with our eyes you led an insurrection and leading an insurrection is a violation of a morals clause which states that you're going to Follow the law. Guess what? Leading insurrections, not following the law.
2: Again, this is like picking up nickels and dimes in front of a steamroller. I mean, I don't know why he's bringing this case and why only about the golf course in the Bronx. I don't know why it's not about the ice skating rink. I guess he wants to back to Dan Lust's comment about the NCAA. He thinks there's a more favorable fora sitting in the Bronx. But again, He's got a steamroller behind him of, of, of Cy Vance's Manhattan DA about to roll over him and his family. Why he's worried about the golf course contract, I have no f and idea.
0: Lust. Can, I, can I ask a question? Can I ask yeah. a question here? Yes. I, I like this fancy term like Popakism. What what do we call no, the believers? Popakian. Pop- well, I, well, okay, Popakian, fine. What do we call the people that believe in Popakian? Are they like po- Pop- What What is no, They're they're, 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 Pope, they're Popakists. 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 They're Popakists. I, li-
1: I like it. I like it. Uh, po- Popakists. There are some <laughs> Popakians. Before they become Popakists, they start up as Popakians, then they get their wings as Popakists. We should put that on a t-shirt. It's like do, that would be a hot seller. Wait I till, till we we'll we'll do Masalis. Three. Wait
2: till we do Masalis one day. It is
1: called Midas Touch. That's it. I was going to yeah, say, that's it. true. You got the whole thing. <laughs> I got the whole thing. All right. Switching gears. We're on our fourth quarter of Midas Touch Legal AF using <laughs> sports analogies in honor of, of our special guest, Dan Lust. Let's talk about the Justice Department's action this week in suing Georgia over uh, their bullshit voting rights restrictions bill. I don't even know what to call it. I want to call it a voting bill because it does the exact opposite. Its intention is to repress uh, the rights of voters. On the Midas Touch podcast, we had Gabriel Sterling, who runs their voting system. He's the C chief operating officer. He's actually a private official who's hired by the government. Gabriel's actually a great guy. Uh, He tweets a lot about barbecues, actually had a great conversation with him. But when you asked him, you said, but Gabe, the underlying aspects of this bill—that there was voter fraud—and voter fraud on a rampant scale—is a complete lie. Do you agree, Mister Sterling, that the entire premise of this bill is false? And he goes, "Yeah, I totally agree with you. The, the entire premise of the bill is false." He gets into some of the nooks and crannies of the bill, which have certain aspects of it that Republicans like, as Republicans like to suppress the vote, um, but. He even acknowledges, and he's supposed to be the person in charge of the system that the entire premise is based on a lie. Tell me about uh, this uh, this lawsuit brought by the Department of Justice. What, what what's its authority to bring yeah. this, and what are the next steps?
2: Yeah, so we have we talked about it. I think last either Pod thirteen or Pod twelve, we talked about. Merrick Garland, using the powers of the Voting Rights Act, his Civil Rights Division, and the Department of Justice to do what he can about voter suppression laws being passed by states like Georgia. He's now brought, um, signed by the highest level of lawyers in his Civil Rights Division, he's now brought a case, the first one, against the state of Georgia based on their recent voter suppression uh, masquerading as voter integrity laws there's a few problems with it you know, I want to manage expectations first problem is that we have a judge called JP booly JP booly is a Trump appointee that is where the case has landed if he's if we get past J., judge booley we're going to go to the Eleventh Circuit which is also unfortunately packed with a lot of Trump supporters. So from there, if they lose at the bully level, the trial level, they lose at the 11th circuit level, they'll have to go to the Supreme court that's composed of the kind of six to three split that you and I have talked about podcast after podcast. The actual premise of the case is under the voting rights act that these laws have improperly targeted black voters in a way that creates a civil rights 14th amendment violation and therefore a voter a voting rights act violation it does not again i want to manage expectations it does not attack every element that you and i and your listeners and fo- our listeners and followers find offensive about the georgia new statute for instance one of the main ways that a state can influence impact and corrupt an election is to replace the local election boards and pack them with, um, you know, in this case, Republicans. The Georgia has taken the incredible step under its voting rights law to allow the governor to replace local, county, and precinct level uh, supervisors of election and boards of election, and those are the ones that are really day to day the most influential over an election, they set the hours for voting. They decide whether a voter will be disqualified at the polling place based on ID, based on some other, you know, BS thing. They decide whether somebody, if they vote out of precinct, whether their their vote is going to be enfranchised or disenfranchised. That's all done. All that kind of hand-to-hand combat is done by the Uh, by these boards, these election boards. This case does not attack at all the ability of the governor to continue to replace with his loyalists on those election boards. What does it attack? It really just focuses on absentee ballots. And what it says is that statistically, black, brown, and other minorities use absentee ballots more than others. And if you do something to create hurdles and barriers to the use of absentee ballots, all you're really doing is disenfranchising black, mainly Black voters in Georgia. They also asked in the case for the extraordinary establishment of a remedy uh, that's called preclearance. What is that? That means they've asked the court to rule that Georgia cannot be trusted with exercising its own voting supervision That there must be a federal supervisor, the Department of Justice over them, and that any new change to their voting laws has to first be pre-cleared by the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division before they can even put it on their books. They had that power, and the Supreme Court took it away in a number of historically- prejudicial or or states based on prejudice against races in the South, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia for a long time. Supreme Court and Supreme Court's past said, well, we're we're really we're really in a post racial division period in our history. I don't know where where they get that from. But and we're going to remove the Department of Justice as the supervisor of all elections, if you will, in these states. And Georgia got released from that obligation. Department of Justice now wants this judge to put them back into the supervisory role of all election changes in Georgia. But as I said, we got to get through a Trump appointee on the federal bench, a very conservative 11th Circuit, one that I used to actually go to when I practiced in Florida, and then to the Supremes. And all that will play out over the next couple of years.
1: One of the interesting things here was, I think, pre-pandemic, though, the absentee voting was pushed far more forcefully by Republicans. I I know out here in California, you know, that's how they, you know, tried to get a lot of the elderly vote by absentee. There was kind of a complete 180 degree shift uh, during, you know, post pandemic of those statistics of who's voting absentee. So I wonder if surgically focusing on absentee, kind of forces that issue where, yes, statistically, the focus here is on black and brown voters. That's what Georgia was trying to institute. But as you start fleshing out what this case is, the idea of absentees was actually something that Republicans would bank on absentees from the, you know, from elderly to win elections. I mean, that was the case in California. So yeah, that, I wonder if that was also a strategic I, decision.
2: I agree with you. The Democrats in the last election ate the Republicans lunch when it came to absentee balloting in a way that I don't think the Republicans anticipated. The Democrats got their voters um, who were worried about pandemic and waiting in lines to do alternate voting other than live and um, the Republicans, in, in a rare case of them being sort of having a political tenure, because usually they're pretty good at this, they were caught flat-footed and with their pants down to continue to continue the metaphors. And the Democrats really overproduced in terms—I'm not fraudulently, just overproduced in terms of the percentages of absentee balloting. So, what is the first thing the Republicans do when they find out that people are being enfranchised and are voting too much? Uh, try to take that right or right away. And if it happens to also impact uh, Blacks in Georgia who helped win the election for Ossoff and Warnick and ultimately Biden, so the better.
1: Les, don't we want, at the end of the day, shouldn't all of the efforts that are going, across, going on across the country, though, to be, how do we get to 100% voting? Like each election, we should figure out ways, you know, even if, You know, one side's against voter IDs and one side wants voter ID. Shouldn't we figure out, well, how do we get every American there no matter what? Should we make it easy online? How do we create a system where everybody votes, you know, in a safe and secure way? And, you know, ultimately, what's just so obvious and transparent about what's going on here is we could overcomplicate the different initiatives. But at the end of the day, you have one party who wants as many people to vote as possible who are over the age of eligibility and you got one group of people who want less people to vote. Like I I know sometimes we overcomplicate it, but sometimes it just seems as simple as that. And voting at the end of the day, to me, should be the most bipartisan thing there is. And I know you're the voice of bipartisanship on our show. So what do you think about that? I thought I was the voice of sports. It seems like I have two voices here, which which
0: I will take sports
1: and bipartisanship
0: and squirrels. uh and squirrels and what dogs are thinking about in their politics. <laughs> so I have five hats that I wear on the show. Um, uh-huh. So I might surprise you guys here. I, I used to be pretty involved in local politics over in uh, in Westchester County, where I'm from in New York. So it, it's funny. So Ben, to your, your question, how do you get to 100% voting? I mean, at a state level, there are certain states that are going to go blue and red, no matter how many people vote, right? So New York is always going to go blue. And so I have friends that shall not be named on this podcast that that don't feel the need to vote because New York's going to go blue no matter what. So I think of the percentage of people that are not voting, a lot of the people are probably wearing that hat in some sense. And then there's, the half that just doesn't you know that doesn't care and doesn't give a shit but there's a percentage of educated people that just say yeah hey, what's the what's the point in voting right it's going to go blue anyway so at, at a local level very very differently and uh, michael i'm going to surprise you my first appellate case is actually an election law case i wear a lot of hats here i was not just hired for my sports brain Over at election law Garrido. cases i get that I, i've i've done a handful of election law cases shockingly uh, and uh, I, I will tell you at a local politics level the door-to-door grassroots nature of it you're literally going and knocking on door to shaking hands, at almost hitting 100% of any given city or town, you're going to get pretty good voter turnout there. And it's not because of left or right, it's because local politics can turn on a couple of people. So yeah, I I think it's one of these, uh, like you're chasing this, this like brass ring, like, are we ever going to get to 100%? Probably not. But I think it's just the the way that state government is set up or federal government. I, I just don't think we're ever going to see that New York's always going to be blue. It doesn't doesn't matter how many people come out or don't come out.
2: But but I think it goes back to what you, Ben, and you and I talked about earlier. We have a party, and now we see the expression of that party, that does not want full voter turnout because it's a narrow-based party. And they can't win. They know they can't win. The more people that vote, we know statistically, the more people that vote, the more that vote Democrat. They don't want that they always want and they've always been a party of voter suppression forever even before the civil rights movement so they never want 100% for them a good election is one where there's weather events rain you know snow people can't make it to the polls because those are those super voters are usually democratic and they're worried that, about that. Isn't that problematic that, that a seat yes. of
0: victory would be less people voting? Yes. Listen, but,
2: the party is, but you have a party that's that is based on it. And now that they're in power in some state houses, not all state houses, but now that they're in power in some state houses, they've taken to express that their politics, their winning strategy is now hitting the books in voter suppression laws you'll never have you know you'll never have to be honest with you a republican that wants to win national office or cares about his party doing so will almost never be in favor of 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 complete 100% voting this country could do it from a technology standpoint overnight you could have for instance as in some states you could make it so easy to vote so easy to vote voter registration with your with your with your driver's license automatic drop offs at libraries and schools in secure boxes that you drive up to and drop in the mail, like in Oregon. And I think maybe even California does a version of that. So it's your civic duty to do it. You just drive up like you're, like you're getting a bag of Burger King fries and you drop in your ballot. You do it electronically, like an ATM, you, you extend voting not just on one election day but over a period of time to allow for the capture of as many votes as possible you make it a national holiday where you don't have to worry about people losing their jobs they're paid to go and and vote there there are there are ways to incorporate that into civic duty that's why some countries have 80 90 percent turnout and we have less than 50 in most at most times, at least for national office. But we have a party that will never agree to this because it is not in their political best interest to do that. The lower, the better. They get to below 50 percent. They got a fighting chance. They get above that. They're
1: dead bang losers. I think we've just just uncovered something. I I think that's why Republicans like golf, lower score. Um, right. Michael, can I ask you? Are you a
0: fan
2: of Burger King fries over McDonald's fries? No. Is that what you? And just I don't know why. No, and I don't know why I use Burger King because I'm a McDonald's don't, kid.
1: Burger King why. is disgusting.
2: Those are disgusting fries. <laughs> Hopefully, Burger King does not sponsor this podcast, Ben. I am not culpable no. for this. No, we have to get I, sponsors. <laughs> I, I,
1: I, I, I would say this. This is a good. It's a good time to mention that this show is not sponsored by Burger King or McDonald's. Dan Lust does not. It, it, his statements about Burger King, if Burger King did want to be a sponsor, <laughs> his own are not opinion ne- are not necessarily reflective. Yeah. D- no, they of the are just facts. I, facts. Well, let, let, me, let me tell you one thing that Burger King's done good recently that I like. I like that they've introduced the Impossible Burger at mm. Burger King, which I think is a good alternative for vegans out there. So I do like that move. I don't know if McDonald's has something similar, but the show is sponsored by. Geragos and Geragos and Zupano, Patricius and Popak, as we've always said before, Michael Popak and myself, we're not just legal AF analysts, we're actually practicing lawyers. And so for those out there who have been, if, you, if you've been injured in, a, in an accident, whether it's catastrophic or not, or you know somebody who's been injured, if you're a victim of sexual harassment in the workplace or know someone who has, if there's a contract dispute, if there's a business dispute, you know, Popak and I usually handle, and Dan, I the firm now at Garagos and Garagos, you know, we, we tend to handle the, the the higher level, bigger types of cases. And so if you or someone, you know, has one of those kind of bigger, higher level, you know, cases where they've been seriously injured, no matter what type of injury that is, reach out to us, we get back to you. Uh, my email is ben at garagos.com, B-E-N at G-E-R-A-G-O-S, that's B-E-N at G-E-R-A-G-O-S. Again, that's for personal injury cases, employment uh, cases, discrimination cases, sexual assault and harassment cases. And Popak, give your email address.
2: I will. And and a little bit different practice. I don't really do the personal injury things unless it's product liability oriented. But I do do the high end commercial litigation, business dispute litigation, uh, class action work and um, things that arise out of the employment world, uh, both um you know, just whether it's litigated or non-litigated, right, negotiated or ultimately litigated or, or trial work related to employment matters is something that I'm comfortable in handling and, and expert in. So my uh, work email is mpopok, P-O-P-O-K, at zplaw.com.
1: Thank you for that. And let's close with talking about, I think, some news where the judge got it right. Let's go to Minneapolis, where The judge sentenced Derek Chauvin to 22 and a half years for the murder of George Floyd. Uh, We've kept our listeners up to date on all of the developments in that murder trial um, from the commencement through conviction. And now with sentencing, we've talked about on past podcasts that the prosecutors recommended a upward departure from the sentencing guidelines. The prosecutors actually wanted, I think, 30 years or 30 plus years. Chauvin wanted obviously less than what the guidelines suggested. Um, And ultimately, the judge went above the guidelines, uh, which were around, I think it was 12 to 14 years. And uh, here sentenced Derek Chauvin to 22 years um, and actually used the fact that Chauvin abused his position of power and trust as a police officer, plus his culpability as making him extra uh, responsible um, and and deserving of extra punishment above and beyond uh, those guidelines. Uh, Based on what some legal analysts say, usually people in Minneapolis serve about two-thirds of the prison sentence. So he would be out in about 15 years, think he's in his early to mid-40s. And so that means he'd get out in his 60s. Uh, Popak, what's going on?
2: Yeah. Look, I think um, we sort of hit it right. Uh, We managed expectations in this area. Um, The sentencing guidelines was about 12 and a half years. The um, Chauvin side pushed for, I mean, pushed for like zero, like a suspended sentence. Uh, Judge was never going to do that. Uh, Anybody that watched the jury verdict and the judge's relief on the jury verdict knew that this judge and based on his decisions to enhance uh and allow for enhancement factors including the one that you just mentioned ben about abuse of power that he was never going to give the 12 and a half years the only question was um was he going to go all the way to the 30 years that the prosecutors were asking for. He was never going to go over that, but was he going to, although he could, he could have gone to 40, but he was never going to go, I think, above the 30. And, you know, in his Solomonic way, he came up with what he thought was a rational approach to why this individual is sentenced to 22 and a half years. I don't think Chauvin did any service to himself when he gave sort of a perfunctory uh, comment about the victims and their family Um, He came off, um, at least courtroom watchers, uh, came off as not really showing much remorse. That's the time you want to show remorse. He could have, and he didn't. And I don't think his lawyers helped him either. We talk about lawyering on this podcast. I don't think his lawyer has helped him by saying, well, he was a pretty good cop, and, you know, he volunteered that day. He wasn't supposed to work that shift. I mean, what does this have to do with the loss of life of George Floyd being murdered you know, crushed under the weight for nine and a half, nine and a half minutes. I I really didn't get why they were making these arguments. I thought they were, they were, they were poor form and tin eared and certainly didn't go over with the judge. So you're right from what I've read, and what I've heard, two thirds, two things are going to happen to the sentence. First of all, he has 199 days of time served which is going to come off the top because he has been sitting in custody in jail for all of that time. And when you do that math, along with the two thirds for time served, if he's good behavior and that we have to see if he's going to be on good behavior while he's in prison, it'll reduce it to about 15 years on the three counts. But I I agree with you. I think the judge got it about right. I think you and I had said about 20 to 25 years, and that's where it ended up.
1: One of the things here strategically that Chauvin's lawyer did is waive. The jury's ability to right. sentence Chauvin and to allow that to be, you know, determined by the judge. Um, ultimately, do you think that a jury would have sentenced him for longer, uh, shorter? Um, did he make the right legal? Did his lawyers make the right yeah. legal decision? Or you think it yeah. probably would have come out around that, the same?
2: No, that's a very good um, softball for me because um, I just sort of critiqued those lawyers for what I thought was a relatively not great job in the sentencing hearing. I thought though the decision, the tactical decision to not have the jury, the same jury that just convicted him also, which they have to make the decision before. They can't wait to see what the jury says and then, oh, we'll go with the judge. They made that decision before, fearing that a jury who was gonna throw the book at him having heard the evidence would hang them high, as they say. I think they're right. I think this jury, and based on the interviews of the jury that happened after the trial and the testimony that they found most persuasive, including the young woman who's now won a Pulitzer for, for videotaping um, uh, the actual crime, the murder, and then testifying quite uh, poignantly and with great emotion about the fact that she felt like she could have she wished she had done more. She wished she had knocked over four, you know, giant policemen. She was a small, a small person, and saved in some way. And she has nightmares about that. That testimony, which the jury talked about, I think would have led them to push that needle all the way up to 40. So in a way, the 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 lawyers did the right thing for their client and probably saved them 10 years off of a sentence.
1: Dan Lust, final words.
2: Dan Love. Uh,
0: yeah. so i'm uh so i have a i have a 19 month old running around i have a uh, a wife that's due in a month so i am i am uh in the middle of the the thick of young fatherhood so i uh i appreciate being brought onto the show i think the one thing i wanted to acknowledge before uh before i have okay. departed i am the newly appointed sports law professor over at new york law school so talking sports talk at law um but always a pleasure to come on with you guys you guys uh Uh, I don't know, Ben, Ben and Michael, uh, I follow everything you guys do on social and you're definitely leaders in the space. So my pleasure to come out with you guys. And I guess on the sports side, stay tuned on college sports because it is about to be a wild ride for the next, uh, we'll say two, three weeks, but uh, it's going to change college sports
2: as we know it. Hey Ben, can we, can we do one last thing? Yeah. What's up? Uh, Yeah. I want to, and I probably Ben's young family reminded me of this. So my adopted home state, as you know, had a tremendous tragedy in the last week. I know the community of Surfside Florida well. In my prior life, uh, my law firm was the city attorney for Surfside. I know the mayor, Mayor Burkett well. And so we grieve with all of the families. There's over 150 families. Um, You you would have thought we were talking about a third world country and some sort of bomb that had gone off or an earthquake. But 150 people are missing and probably lost. In, in surfside so there is a um, leading charitable organization it's led by the Miami Heat and a number of cities in and around surfside it's called support Sur- Sur- sorry supportsurfside.org and I would uh, commend our listeners and followers to go check that out and see what they can do to help those grieving families I mean in Miami it's a really small community very small community besides those 150 families I'm sure, it's not just one degree of separation; it's even closer. Everybody knows somebody. I know people that were that are uh, presumed lost, and so I wanted to uh, in interject real life into our podcast. We talk about Florida a lot, and usually not in great terms. But you know, it's suffering right now, and I think it needs our support.
1: Michael Popak, Dan Lust, thank you both uh, for joining me on this uh, incredible episode of Midas Touch Legal AF. For all of those listening, we appreciate your support. We appreciate you joining us each and every Sunday. If it's Sunday, it is Legal AF. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Have a great week.